Before we get started, I want to tell you about something new that we're trying. All podcasters know the best way to grow your show is through word of mouth. So we created a referral link that makes it easy to share the podcast by text, email, or DM to your friends, family, or anyone else you know who could use a little dose of inspiration for civic engagement and our collective future. It's a two-step process. First, follow the link in our show notes to get your personal referral link, which you can then send around. Once you share our show with five friends who then download the podcast, I'll send you a handwritten thank you note and a future hindsight button to thank you for your support. If you share it with 10 friends who download an episode, I'll send you a branded Future Hindsight Moleskin Notebook. Yup, a real Moleskin Notebook with our logo on it. Thank you for spreading the word and thank you for listening. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Vina Dubal. She's professor at the University of California Hastings College of the Law. As part of her doctoral research, she conducted an ethnography of the San Francisco taxi industry, which arose from her work as a public interest attorney and Berkeley Law Foundation fellow at the Asian Law Caucus where she founded a taxi worker project and represented Muslim Americans in civil rights cases. She's now writing a manuscript on how five decades of shifting technologies and emergent regulatory regimes changed the everyday lives and work experiences of ride-hail drivers in San Francisco. To get ready for this interview, I read her paper on the history of the San Francisco Chauffeurs Union a hundred years ago, which was both fascinating and instructive on what it took at that time to ensure that work was secure. Much of why work is precarious today is for the very same reasons it was then. Precarity is a term that's really proliferated over the last 10 to 15 years. And what it signifies is work that in stark comparison to sort of what we saw in the post-World War II era in most and many Western countries, including the United States, where you had people who had one job, full-time employment, making enough money to put food on the table, to pay for their rent. They had stability and security in their lives. Precarious work in contrast to that is the rise of work that is unstable, unpredictable. We talk about the gig economy and the way app-based companies have proliferated unprotected work and the role of unionization, regulation, and the law to earn stable and secure livelihoods. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Your research focuses on the intersection of law, technology, and precarious work. Tell us a little bit more about the work that you do. I'm generally interested in how the law responds to technological shifts and either create situations where everyday workers are living secure, stable lives, and the alternative response to the shifts such that it exacerbates the insecurity and instability of people's lives. My most well-known project is on the quote-unquote gig economy and how these sort of app-based 
companies, these labor platform companies have proliferated unprotected work and how laws and regulations are and are not responding to this work. So what have you found in terms of the gig economy? So, I, you know, I started doing this work more than 10 years ago, looking actually at the taxi industry and shifts in how workers had over a period of time gone from a unionized workforce to a de-unionized workforce, particularly in San Francisco, and how workers who were not in a union, who didn't have employee status, who didn't have any of the common protections that employees have in America, how they were responding to their work lives. And as I was doing this research, Uber, Lyft, and then Sidecar hit the streets of San Francisco. I was really certain that San Francisco regulators and California state regulators would force them out of business because they were operating illegally. And I was sort of surprised in 2013, 2014, when the state of California actually sanctioned them without addressing the fact that these workers had none of the protections that traditional employees have and none of the protections that taxi workers have had over the last 40 years. And since then, the Uberization of many, many things in the service economy has proliferated all over the country and all over the world. I've also been studying how workers themselves have been responding. And over the past, I would say two years, there has been a lot of really amazing grassroots organizing, you know, workers themselves self-organizing, engaging in direct actions, boycotts, strikes, petitions, all sorts of collective activity to push regulators to ensure that the companies provide work that is more secure than it is right now. I think in this context, it would be really helpful to define what is precarious work for a taxi driver and what is secure work. What's the difference? That's a great, great question. Precarity is a term that's really proliferated over the last 10 to 15 years. And what it signifies is work that in stark comparison to sort of what we saw in the post-World War II era in many Western countries, including the United States, where you had people who had one job, full-time employment, making enough money to put food on the table, to pay for their rent. They had stability and security in their lives. Precarious work in contrast to that is the rise of work that is unstable, unpredictable. Workers don't know how many hours that they're going to get paid for. They are, you know, by and large, ununionized and ununionized spaces such that their wages are low. Many times people who are engaging in precarious work have to work more than one job, sometimes two or three jobs. And so this is generally what we mean when we say precarious work. It's unstable. You can't build a life off of this. And so in the taxi industry, for most of the 20th century, the taxi workers, at least in San Francisco, were were unionized. They, there was a chauffeur's union that bargained on behalf of those workers, which made it really hard to fire these workers. And it also meant that they could at least predict a base income. If they worked hot, harder and longer, they could make more, but they could at least predict a base income because the unions had bargained a wage floor for them. Then in the late 1970s, early 80s, you saw the rise of a practice called leasing 
in which taxi workers were converted to independent contractors by the taxi companies. This resulted in the deunionization of the entire taxi workforce in San Francisco. And all of a sudden, workers who had health care plans through their unions, who had workers' compensation and unemployment insurance, had nothing to fall back on. Except, and this was critical, except that fares were still regulated by the city because taxi work since the 1930s has been understood as a public utility. And so as a way to prevent price gouging of consumers and to provide some income stability to workers, regulators for many, many decades have regulated the fares that taxi companies can charge. And what happened with Uber and Lyft, essentially, is that they took all of that away. They ensured that by being regulated by the CPUC in California, the California Public Utilities Commission, local cities couldn't regulate fares. So, you know, anyone could download an app and start driving in their car. And on any given day, there is an oversaturation of workers awaiting fares. It's very difficult, particularly now now to predict how much one is going to earn after driving for 12 to 16 hours as an Uber or Lyft driver. Right. This is essentially exactly the condition that the chauffeur workers union tried to avoid about 100 years ago. When I read your paper on the history of work regulation and labor advocacy in San Francisco's taxi and Uber economies, I was really struck by how well organized this early taxi union was. They not only bargained for wages and hours, but also business models and municipal regulations, which you touched on just now a little bit. What did the chauffeur's union do particularly well to advance their cause, which is the well-being of the taxi workers? It's a really great question. In the early 1920s, what the chauffeurs union did particularly well was build a sense of identity and build a community amongst the taxi drivers. And what's hard about today's Uber economy is that so many of the drivers are part-time and casual. And so for workers who are doing this as a second job or as a third job, and even sometimes as a fourth job, they don't necessarily identify as an Uber driver. It's not a craft identity that they really think about as, as intrinsic to who they are. And so I think part of what the chauffeurs union had that today's labor groups don't have is they had a small group of people who really had a lot of pride in the work that they were doing. There was a chauffeur's union hall where people could meet and form friendships and community and build identity. And, and so they were working with an easier base. The organizing challenges that people have in the Uber economy are really rooted in the fact that these workers are now atomized. You know, there's no one place that they all meet like they did in the early 20th century, and they're not invested in collective identity in the way that taxi workers were. Yeah, in fact, one of the things that you mentioned in your paper is the idea of being an independent contractor, but that being an independent contractor means different things to the taxi driver and to the leasing company. It creates basically a gray area for the leasing company to take advantage of the driver. 
Why is it that the workers themselves don't realize that by signing on to this idea of being independent makes them actually less secure? I think that part of the problem in the late 70s, early 80s, when many of the taxi workers decided that they were going to sign on to these lease agreements where they had to pay to work, many of them just didn't quite understand what they were losing out on because they had existing issues with the unions. They thought that if they were in a position where they had to pay the company just $100 a day or however much a day, and then they could keep all the rest of the money, that that would give them the capability to work longer and harder to make more. So there's sort of this allure of entrepreneurialism that the taxi workers glommed onto, which led to the relative deregulation of the taxi industry and certainly the deunionization of the taxi industry. I see echoes of that today because they have this sort of facade of independence. These are not jobs where they have a boss on their back. The boss is an algorithm. And even though they can't predict their income, even though they don't have any control over fares, even though they're directed as to where they go and how they drive and even what they can say to customers, they still feel like, well, this somehow must be better than, say, a job at Walmart or Burger King. And the jobs at Walmart or Burger King are employee jobs. And so I want to stay an independent contractor. And in my research, what I found is that workers are really confused about what it means to be an employee and their ideas of employment are heavily influenced by what the companies tell them. And the second thing I've learned is that they're really scared of the power that the companies might exert over them if the companies themselves fully embraced their identity as employers. There's a real, I call it an uber ambivalence towards employment status. On the one hand, they want wage protections. They want the right to collectively organize. They want workers' compensation. They want unemployment insurance. On the other, they're really worried about the coercion that comes with employment status, and they're worried about what their lives might look like if things change even more than they already have. The other thing that I think is important to point out is I talk about this logic as the rationality of poverty, that oftentimes people just need money in their hands to get to the next day. They need money to pay their landlord. They need money to buy groceries. They need money to pay off a debt. And so the idea that one day they are going to need unemployment insurance or one day they might get into an accident and need proper commercial car insurance. These things are secondary to just having money in their pocket today. And so sort of the long-term considerations that employment status really takes into account sometimes don't seem as relevant to people who are just desperate to get to tomorrow. That's fascinating, right? Because when you consider what Uber drivers are doing, they're buying their own insurance, they supply their own cars, and they pay for their own gasoline. And then they put in their labor, they work, and they drive around for 12 hours. And then they might come out with nothing. And yet they don't want to be a full-time employee. If you could explain it to an Uber driver, what would you say to explain really what the benefits are of being an employee? Yeah, so I think that drivers are told by their employers, by Uber and Lyft and Instacart and DoorDash every day that if you are going to be an employee, you're going to lose all flexibility and even fire you. 
Those are the two things that workers are most fearful of. They're worried about losing their jobs and they're worried about losing the work that they have and the ability to do the work when they need to do it. It's important to understand that they're heavily influenced by the threats that they get from the company. What I would tell someone who is worried about flexibility is to say, first, how much flexibility do you really have? You have to work essentially when there is demand. And even when there is demand, you're not always getting the fares that you need or want. You can't just turn on your app and earn. Is that really flexibility? And second, that there's nothing about employment status that prohibits flexibility, that that is ultimately a business decision. And really the best way to have power over one's schedule is to engage in collective bargaining with the companies themselves. So this is an issue that if drivers are employees, which you know we know that they are, but if the companies acknowledge it, that they are employees and they're able to get a union, then this is absolutely an issue that they can bargain over, that they can uh, have a guarantee of flexibility, a guarantee of a wage floor, that all of these things can come. Um, but what has to happen is that they need to be involved in the movement. They need to join hands with their fellow drivers and really work towards this goal. And that that is what will ultimately give them both flexibility and stability. This week, like last week, and also next week, our show is brought to you by Jordan Harbinger and his podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show. We love his show for a few reasons. First, Jordan loves supporting indie podcasts like ours, and who doesn't love that? Second, The Jordan Harbinger Show is an interview podcast just like Future Hindsight, and who doesn't love a well-planned interview? Third, Jordan's show has a mission to help you become a better person and live a fuller life. Well, before you roll your eyes, no, this isn't some sappy self-help podcast. Jordan interviews people who are at the top of their game, whether that game is basketball, the stock market, spacewalking, or just being happy. He uses these interviews to gain kernels of wisdom and insight and delivers them directly into your ears. Go check out his show today. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the show at jordanharbinger.com. Right, so let's talk about that. What is the best way for taxi drivers in general, whether they're working for Uber or whether they're working for a regular taxi company, to organize and build power? It's a great question. And I think that there are two general answers. So there's the more traditional union route and what drivers are doing in California right now, there's an organization called Rideshare Drivers United. They're self-organized drivers by talking to one another, by building power with one another, by meeting more than weekly, by building a structure, they have been able to build a membership of 17,000 drivers in California. Now, if Rideshare Drivers United ultimately decides to file for union recognition or to try and get union recognition then, and Uber is forced to the bargaining table, then this is one route for drivers to get stability. And the second route, which is interesting, which has some sort of foundation backing, is through a cooperative framework. And so another way for workers to have power in their lives, to make decisions, to have some control over their own income and over their own hours is 
by forming cooperatives with one another. And the difficulty with this, of course, is that there is no funding to scale a cooperative movement in the way that Uber or Lyft has scaled across the United States. That really takes venture capital money. And so to effectively compete with these companies, a cooperative would need more than seems possible. I think the union route is the most promising route. And what needs to be done to get there is just exactly what workers are doing every day, which is calling their fellow workers, talking to them about the problems that they have at work, building one-on-one relationships, and bringing those workers into the movement. If the workers focus primarily on full-time drivers and on reprofessionalizing this workforce so such that people don't have to have four jobs to get by, that that is promising and possible. Right. Well, I think what sounds similar, though, with the movement that you're describing and the movement in the early 20th century is that it was about making sure that as many people as possible joined the union and joined the effort. The chauffeur's union was 100% participation among all the drivers. So that really is the kind of thing where you can exert power vis-a-vis your employer, because everybody is part of the union. And if you only have a little bit of buy-in, it really doesn't work as well. That is absolutely right. And the hard thing today is that because of the apps, the companies have so much power to influence how workers understand their work and understand the law in relationship to their work. And so the kinds of union busting that employers did in the early 20th century sort of pales in comparison to the kinds of union busting that we see happening in California right now, for example, in relationship to Proposition 22. And so Proposition 22 is, I think, the most expensive proposition in United States history. $180 million put in by the major gig companies, Uber, Lyft, Instacart, DoorDash, and Postmates to create a special carve-out just for their workers from California employment law. So essentially a third category of worker that would not get the same benefits as all other workers in California get. And in order to pass this law, the companies have been sending their workers text messages every day, emails every day, doing everything that they can using their sort of unfettered access to their workers to sway their opinion, to make them believe the things that they are saying about flexibility in particular, and they're scaring workers. I think this is a good time to ask a question about regulation, because it used to be that the taxi industry, as you mentioned earlier as well, that it was considered a semi-public utility. And so how is it that that is no longer the case, even though, of course, it is a public utility? I think of taking a taxi as taking public transportation. Yeah, it's so interesting. So in most states, including in California, Uber and Lyft, they now call them transportation network companies. These are still considered utilities. So in California, they're regulated by the California Public Utilities Commission. But the CPUC prohibits any kind of local regulation on top of what the CPUC itself is doing. And so as a result, there has been no attempt at the local level to ensure that workers have 
fair wages, that workers have secure work, that they actually are carrying the kinds of insurance they need to be protected if they are injured on the job. And it's sort of fascinating from a regulatory perspective that despite the fact that it is considered a public utility, that they are not taking these risks seriously. And I think it speaks to the amount of power that these companies have over regulators. If you could introduce legislation on behalf of the workers, what would be the first thing that you would try to pass? <laughs> That's a great question. So if this were in California, the first thing that I would try and pass is that local municipalities have the power to regulate supply and fares. So essentially going back to what the taxi industry during the Great Depression achieved, which was that you don't have an oversupply of workers and you have the regulation of fares so that workers can be actually working when they're working and they can make a living. The California Judiciary of our held that these drivers are employees. So in addition to having a more tightly regulated market, it would be incumbent on these companies to provide workers' compensation, to provide unemployment insurance. And I would also really like to see regulation that says that these workers have the right to a flexible work schedule, because that is something that the companies try and take away from them all the time, or at least threaten to take away from them, which gives them a lot of power over the workers themselves. That's really comprehensive. Fantastic. I have a question about the deregulation amidst the Great Recession, because at that time, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors dissolved the city's taxi commission, which was charged with regulating the taxi industry. And it basically was the nail in the coffin for the taxi industry and removed all of the last parts of protection for taxi workers. Can you talk a little bit more about that? It's important to note that these companies emerge from the ashes of the Great Recession. And it was just the right environment in San Francisco to allow that to happen because in the taxi industry, we were moving from this sort of tightly regulated democratic system of governance in which there was a taxi commission that met weekly in open public meetings in which there was public comment, input by drivers actually that sat on the commission. Two, what happened was Governor Newsom decided in the context of this recession that he could make millions of dollars off of the taxi industry to sort of deal with the city's budget shortfall. And so he looked at the New York City context where medallions were worth millions of dollars. And he noted that in San Francisco, medallions had no monetary value because the city had not conferred monetary value onto the medallions and he wanted to sell them. But the only way that he could sell them was to dissolve the taxi commission. And so the Board of Supervisors did dissolve the Taxi Commission. They consolidated regulation of the Taxi Commission under Muni, the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency, and they started selling medallions. This happened within the same time frame as Uber and Lyft operating illegally in San Francisco. And so at the same time that the city was selling for $250,000 a pop to immigrant taxi drivers and even facilitating their loans, they were allowing 
Uber and Lyft drivers to operate on the streets of San Francisco, essentially resulting in an oversupply of drivers, which made it so that the medallions themselves were worthless and also created a regulatory environment in which it was very hard to hold these companies accountable to say that they were operating illegally, to stop them from operating because the governance of the taxi industry itself was all of a sudden happening in a much less democratic context behind closed doors at an agency that had yet to even understand the taxi industry because they were just taking over. It basically sounds like a crime. I mean, when Uber came into New York City, the medallions were worth millions of dollars and now they're worth a fraction of what they were once worth. They were also mired in debt in order to buy these medallions and people committed suicide because they couldn't meet the payments or it was basically worthless because they could never sell it and it was their retirement. It was really devastating. It continues to devastating. I know in San Francisco, many people have had their medallions foreclosed on, which is completely devastating to them. These are immigrants who came here with nothing and who built everything and now still have nothing or once again have nothing. And it's very hard for them to get credit, to secure credit now, et cetera. And what's even worse is that the city does nothing about it. They, in fact, they are in litigation with the credit union. They brought the San Francisco Credit Union on board. They told the San Francisco Credit Union that they would keep these medallions at some high value and so that these were not risky loans that they should make. So the credit union provided these loans to these drivers. And so not only are they resisting making these drivers whole in any meaningful way or forgiving their debt, they're actually spending money fighting the credit union, which has now sued them. You say it sounds like a crime, and I think it really feels like a crime to a lot of these taxi workers, many of whom are now driving you know, 80 hours a week, sleeping in their cabs just to pay off their loan, forget about trying to put food on the table. So as we are now again in an economic crisis, the pandemic continues to rage and we will have a long economic recovery ahead. How could we rethink taxi work in the 21st century context? And how could we take this opportunity to create more secure work? So first, I think we need to acknowledge that Uber and Lyft are not just displacing taxi drivers, they're also displacing public transportation. And given the economic and climate crisis that we're living in, that is just not good policy moving forward. There is a real intersection here between workers' rights and climate justice that is worth acknowledging. And so moving forward, I think that we need to acknowledge that taxi work has been and can continue to be a good supplement to public transportation, but it should not replace public transportation. And in this pandemic environment where these workers are considered essential workers, but are carved out of the laws protection. So the state on the one hand tells them that they have to work and on the other hand tells them that they have no rights. I think that it's important to acknowledge that this is no longer and really never was a morally acceptable way to proceed either in business or through governance. This can be full-time secure work. We know exactly what kinds of regulations we need to get there. It's you know incumbent upon not just the workers themselves, but as consumers to help them get there and voters to help them get there. We need to grow employment protections for people in this economy and not limit them. We need to ensure that in America, if you work for 
eight to 10 hours a day, you are making enough money to put food on the table and to pay your rent. People need to have a living wage. Hopefully, you know, in the coming months and years emerging from this pandemic, it's important that in this particular sector, the taxi sector, the ride hailing sector, that we acknowledge that this is a professional work. This is work that has dignity. And this is work performed by people who need protections and a living wage and whose collective organizing we should uplift. The way to move forward is not to create new categories of workers who have less and less protections, but rather to grow the power and security of the people who hold our economy up, including these workers who are called essential workers. As an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to advance security for taxi workers? You can donate to these organizations in New York. The organization that's doing the best work is the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. And in, in California, the Rideshare Drivers United is the independent grassroots union that's doing really amazing work. And the other thing that you can do is you can have everyday conversations with the people around you to say that this is not innovation, that this is exploitation. And I think we need to go back to basics here that just because it's a shiny app, just because it involves an iPhone just because drivers are dispatched through algorithms as opposed to by a dispatch company. This does not mean that all of a sudden exploitation is acceptable. And so having those hard conversations with people around you, building back a culture where this kind of exploitation isn't acceptable, I think is the other really critical thing. Last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? What makes me hopeful is the fact that over the last four years, we've had a labor department that has been anti-worker. We've had a president who is anti-worker. We have the growth of precarious work, the growth of inequality, the growth of these app-based institutions that you know exploit and take advantage of everyday workers. And yet, and yet, I observe workers every day who are fighting with every little thing that they have to ensure that their future and the futures of their children are better. And so I think that despite the sort of institutional failures that we have observed, the people power that I have had the, you know, the really amazing opportunity to witness just inspires me. This is a good takeaway. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight. And thank you for all the work that you do. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Like most Americans, I felt like I had a good idea of how the gig economy exploits workers. What I didn't know is that this is an old story dressed up in new technology to make us feel like it is just an inevitable development. It turns out that a hundred years ago, taxi drivers in San Francisco organized and bargained for living wage, stable working conditions, and fair regulations. We definitely can do this again. In this interview, we spoke at length about Prop 22. We taped this conversation before Election Day, so before the proposition was approved by voters at the ballot box in California. The successful passing of this proposition is making similar campaigns in other states viable, like Illinoisans for Independent Work, which is actually solely funded by Lyft. There's no doubt that the next stop is trying to change worker classification at the federal level. It's important that we understand this new classification to really mean more precarity for workers. 
now that the Senate has adjourned and there's no chance of passing an economic relief package during the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. I hope that the incoming administration will tackle labor issues head on. Next week, our guest is Norm Stamper. He's a former Seattle police chief and author of To Protect and Serve, How to Fix America's Police. We talk about the roots of the crisis in policing and the intense alienation of police officers from the people they've been hired to serve, as well as a revolutionary model for American law enforcement, the community-based police department. I celebrate the calls for defunding and dismantling American law enforcement. I celebrate the pleas on the part of grassroots organizers and the many millions of people who've taken to the streets since the George Floyd murder. Let's come to the table and reimagine public safety in America, in which the police are the community and the community are the police. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sayan. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.